Okay, so first time meeting my girlfriend's mother. She's a conservative, no-nonsense woman from small town Pennsylvania. Everyone's nervous. Well, I'm nervous because I know I'm not exactly what she might have been expecting. But turns out cool. We kick it. Good times. At the end of a long weekend, they're dropping me off my place and I'm thinking, safe. Almost there. Almost made it through. Almost. Now, I live in a rehab garage. (laughs) Maybe not rehab, a garage, but it's cool. I'm not tripping about that. What I start tripping about is that as the woman I am desperately trying to impress pulls up to my crib, several official-looking persons are busy throwing my stuff onto the street. Hey! Hey! Turns out my roomie's been spending my rent check on something other than rent. So, I've got to collect everything off the ground, then get back into the car with the skeptical conservative lady from Pennsylvania who probably thought a long time ago that I was not good enough for her daughter. I'm mortified. 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 I call my buddy, Simone Bryce. Hey, um, you know that house you just bought? Yeah. You need a roommate. I'm on my way over. I arrive with my sorry plastic bags, pitiful. Most respectable homeowners wouldn't open the door. But Simone opens the door. Shows me to my new room, puts some steaks on the grill, hands me a beer, and almost at once, the good times roll. Music, dog. I might be living there to this day. Instead, That same girlfriend I mentioned earlier, we move in together, right down the street. And even as I'm packing my plastic bags, another friend of mine lands in town, down on his luck, desperate, looking for a place to stay. This guy moves in when I move out. He calls his life there with Simone the happy time. Now, that skeptical woman from Pennsylvania is my beloved mother-in-law. That friend who moved in is Snap Judgment's Uber producer, Mark Ristich. And the garage is a place I parked the car. All this, so different than picking my drawers up off the street just a few short years ago. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Simone Bryce gave her brother a helping hand. So today on the Snap Judgment, from WNYC Studios, we proudly present... Backstory. The story before the story. My name is Lynn Washington. You can't get into my place without a garage door opener because you're listening to Snap Judgments. Now then, we're going to kick off the show with a remarkable story. It does deal with sensitive subjects. Yes, small children and sensitive listeners should be advised and all that. But I'm in love with this piece, and I think you will be too. See, a couple of months ago, Snap producer Anna Adderstein, she moved to the Big Apple. But once a snapper, always a snapper. I'll let Anna take it from here. 
What's up, New York City? Peace and blessings to all of y'all. Happy hump day, hump day, hump day, hump day. Like, I got a smile out of you, so I'm good. It's just past midnight on the A train headed to Brooklyn. The car is half full. A woman holds up a binder full of prints and starts flipping through them. So my name is Shaw Kimono. It means she who dances with the spirit of our ancestors. I am a poet, visual artist, and budding fashion designer. I'm gonna do a quick walkthrough so you guys can see. I painted this jacket that I'm wearing. I also painted this shoe. Shakamono is tall with striking features. She's wearing a painted up jean jacket and her dreadlocks are pulled loosely behind her head. She's confident, projects loudly, and as she moves about the car, she recites a poem. Because despite the dark clouds, I have to keep a smile on my face. Because optimism will always be the queen of my religion. And she keeps me going strong throughout the harshest conditions. A few people look up, some give her money, and then she gets off at the next stop. Where we at? Oh, shoot. All right. Have a blessed one, everybody. Please have a wonderful, blessed day. Thank you. What's up? Hello. How are you doing? It's so good to see you. Hey. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, come on in. This is the kitchen. It's one week later, and Shah is sipping tea in my living room. She's wearing the same jean jacket from the train. Up close, you can see that it's painted with an elaborate scene of lions and comets and ancient Egyptian symbols. Shah charges her phone while we talk. Check one, two, one, two, one, two. My name is Shah Kimono. It's a pleasure to be here with Sister Anna. Anna, that sounds even more sexier than Anna. Hola, como estas? Mi nombre es Anna. (laughs) (laughs) We chat about David Bowie and astrology. She's a Libra. Shaw tells me that she lives in Far Rockaway, but she grew up in Michigan with four siblings and her mom. My mom worked for the slaughterhouse, and um, she slaughtered pigs for a living and salted them. So Thornapple Valley bacon and all of that, yeah, my mom was one of those people who packaged and processed the meat. She lost her job. She had to have that job for almost 10 years. So she lost all her benefits, all her pension. She lost everything. And I remember um, my sisters and brothers... They had a lot of issues. I'm the youngest. They had a lot of issues. And they had kids, too. And I, I dealt with a lot. And I remember just, like, here we are dealing with, with with this lights off and gas off and no heat and the kids and barely having food in the refrigerator, you know. It, it bothered me. And I remember shouting to them, I don't want to live no more. I would tell him, I'm gonna kill money, I'm gonna kill myself. Y'all gonna find my body. And I remember cutting myself. And I said, you know what, instead of just cutting, let's just cut our wrist. And I allow you not. His voice was like, don't do it. Like, just like you can hear my voice. I heard a voice. I was in a room by myself. Don't do it. I looked. I'm like, and the next thing it said, my children need you. I don't know who this was, what it was, but I threw that knife down. I looked out the window, out the out the little curtain, to see if anybody was sitting out there in the kitchen. It's like nobody's sitting in the kitchen. This voice came from in here. I'm just sitting there, like crying, like. 
So I just started speaking, speaking to whatever it was in, in, my, in my head, like, but they don't understand me. Nobody loves me. My sisters hate me. They don't know I suffer too. And my brother comes in the room. And he's like, bones, because I was real skinny, bones. You got to stop trying to kill yourself. You got to stop. He's like, what are you doing? Because I had a little blood on my, on my wrist from cutting myself. He was like, you know you hurt your mother every time you, every time you say you stormed to this house and you're going to kill yourself. You make our mommy suffer. And she's been through a lot. And he's like, look. He pulled the curtain back. And she was just sitting there, like, shaking, lighting a cigarette. And, and I remember how awful I felt watching her suffer and knowing how much she's already suffered. And it made me cry. Like, even now, it, it gives me emotion because it's like, I don't want to I don't want to be the one to cause her pain because all my life I've known that I'm the one that saved her life. She was going to commit suicide, and then she got pregnant with me. So I couldn't be the source of her pain. So I stopped claiming to kill myself, and that voice scared the shit out of me. Well, it didn't scare me. It was just like, okay, I hear God. Okay. Because it's like, I used to always battle with Maybe they were just my own thoughts of worthlessness and stuff like that. Especially after I had an accident when I was younger, my sister's boyfriend beat the crap out of me. I was like 14. And he beat me so bad, my face was swollen. And I really became angry. Like I became raging angry because not only did this man not go to jail for what he did, but my family let him back in the house. And then he started trying to rape me. And he didn't want to get caught because he had got another girl pregnant, some 17-year-old kid. And he didn't want to have to go through that. So he started convincing my sister to put me on birth control to cover up his tracks. But I didn't allow it. And I told my sister, wake up. He's trying to have sex with me. One time, everybody was gone, he came came back to the house and he noticed everybody was gone. Everybody was gone except for the kids. And he dragged me to the back, snatched my pants down and put his hand in my crotch. And my oldest nephew, his name is Chauncey. Chauncey stood at the doorway. He had to be like seven, maybe eight years old. And I remember his eyes. He was like the ancestors embodied my nephew. Because he stood there like a toy soldier. And he just stared straight at the guy. And he was just staring at him. And this stare was like, if I was big enough, I would kill you for what you're doing to my auntie right now. He was yelling, Chauncey, go back, to, go back in there and play. And he didn't flinch. Go, he threw something at the door. He didn't flinch. He stood there. And then he got up, buckled his pants up, and thought, my nephew, didn't I tell you to go? And then as he was trying to, you know, dragging my nephew to go, I ran out in there with him. And I told them, but nobody did anything. Nobody did anything. We never went to therapy. We never did nothing. We just, this happened. We're going to sweep it under the rug. It doesn't exist.
Well, what do you do when that, that rug piled up? So I left. And I felt like a disappointment. Because I always had this big dream that I would be something great and help my family to overcome the struggle of poverty. And I remember being on a train and just feeling so ashamed. And I tried to open my mouth to ask to share poetry and stuff, and I couldn't. I just kept crying because it took a long time to just accept the power that I am. And when I feel like I'm doubting it, trust me, the powers that be show up in physical form and say, this is what you're supposed to do. Don't stop. So my name is Shakamono, brothers and sisters. It means she who dances with the spirit of our ancestors. I am a multi-talented artist. On the express train back to Manhattan, Shah holds onto the pole in the middle with one hand and her paper mache shoe with the other. As she speaks, a couple of middle-aged women who look like they're dressed for church not along. Because as a child who grew up in poverty, I found that some people who've never been through the struggle may never understand it if they don't have a third eye. Yes. A young boy and his father sit across from her, and the boy's eyes stay fixed on Shaw the whole time, watching her as she swings from the pole. Be grateful that you don't have to go through that struggle. Be grateful that you got a good father, good family. Some people don't have that. As Shaw is about to get off, the boy rushes up to her and asks for a card. Can I get a card? Yes, you can. Absolutely. You're welcome. All right, I, this is my stuff. We all get off the train together, and when the crowd thins, the boy and his dad are still with us on the platform. They tell Shaw that they're living in a shelter. Are you serious? Shaw takes the boy by the shoulders. Don't give up. And don't let the situation make you feel bad about who you are. She tells him to listen for the voices of his ancestors, that when he needs them, they'll be there. Don't forget that. That's Jay Mez Paris. It's a pleasure to meet you, Paris. It's a pleasure to meet you, Jay Mez. Follow your dreams, and thank you for asking for a card. How Stay old strong. Are you? Nine. Nine? The first time I was homeless, I was eight. We were homeless twice. My mother had the same job. Don't blame yourself. And don't let nobody make you feel less than. Because some of the most beautiful tools come from the darkest of You understand that? Keep your head up. It's going to make you stronger, like it did me. OK? Peace. Thank you so much, Shah Kimono, for sharing your story. If you're in New York, keep your eyes peeled for Shah around the five boroughs, teaching art classes to youth, at clubs, performing music, dance, poetry. We'll have links to her art on our homepage, snapjudgment.org. And if you catch her on the train, send her our love. That story is produced by Anna Allerstein. Snap it, you should know a whole different kind of story. Snap Judgment Live 
the show made of fire and magic that you can see nowhere else but on stage comes to BAM in Brooklyn, to Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Houston, Austin, Dallas, the nation's top storytellers backed by the sexy, soulful funk of Bell's Atlas. I can't wait to see you there. I love seeing the Snap community. You're going to love it, too. All the feels. Get tickets at snapjudgment.org. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, sometimes a dog is not a dog. And what if you forget what side you're working for? When the backstory episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Today on the show, before you have a story, you have a backstory. And our next piece starts with one person just trying to make her world a better place. I had a really fucking shitty childhood, like just something out of a bad B movie, just because it's like the worst stuff that you can imagine. We had a dog who was supposed to be the family dog. And her name was Rusty because she had rusty colored feet. But if I walked into a room, she would wait on the other side of the door for me. Every single time she would just lay in the door until I came out. I mean, she was my dog. I was her human and I loved her madly. My dog was shelter in the storm, you know? And if I would cry, she was always right there and she'd come and put her head in my lap and she needed me. Nobody else ever needed me before. It kept me from feeling worthless, you know, that that something needed me and that I was good at it. I was 16 at the time. I went to school one day and I came back and my dog was gone and they had taken her and put her to sleep. Not that she was sick, but because she peed when she slept a little bit. So they put her to sleep. They didn't tell me that that was happening, but I didn't get to say goodbye to her. And so she died by herself. We had a big argument. My parents left and I wrote a note that said, Rusty says, fuck you. And I ran away from home. It really changed the path of my whole life. If you're 16 and you run away from home, you're gonna, what it usually happens, you know, in the movies is that you end up as a prostitute or, you know, whatever crazy things happen. But that did not, that wasn't me. I quit school. I got a job. I lied about my age. I got a job at a toy store. I got an apartment. So that was like in the mid 80s. I remember during that time, I knew my parents were looking for me. And if they found me, that they would, you know, call the police and make my life miserable. So I remember I saw them once uh, in a downtown area. I ducked into a building (laughs) really fast, but I was really scared for a minute, but they didn't find me. I was around 30. I had just gotten out of a relationship that was really horrible, and the breakup was really horrible. He did a lot of gaslighting and just made me feel crazy and made me feel very small. I just can't tell you how small I felt. 
Even though I finally found the courage to get away from him, I felt very broken at the time. I think I was a broken person. I really didn't have a social life. And so afterwards, I very slowly started seeing old friends again. So my friends moved into a house and they had me come and visit. Turns out they had moved in next door unbeknownst to them to this very violent gang. This is a very well-known, very violent prison gang. A pretty powerful prison gang. They control what drugs come into the prisons and, and they run the prisons. There was people coming and going all the time. Cars being fixed in the driveway, lookouts on the corner, gunshots a few times, loud music, you know, it was pretty awful. So I'm at my friend's house and we went in the backyard and I saw through the fence in the neighbor's yard this dog. He had this really heavy chain. It was just huge that was padlocked around his neck and it was making his neck drag down. It wasn't even a collar, it was just a chain padlocked around his neck and he was on this concrete pad. He had no shelter, nothing to lay on, an empty food bowl, no water, emaciated, he had mange. You could see all of his ribs and all of his bones. He was just near death. This was the most pitiful creature I have ever seen. So we called animal control, but I don't know if they came because the next time I came down to see my friends, the dog was still there. And I went home and I dreamt about that dog. And I woke up thinking about that dog and I was distracted at work by the dog. And it was two weeks later, I went back. I went back and I boldly went next door, walked straight up there. My knees were knocking together, I was so scared. And I knocked on the door. I'm gonna lay all my cards on the table. Guy opens the little thing in the door, little peephole, and then he opens the door all the way, seeing that I'm not meaning there any harm. And he's got prison tattoos, shaved head, big muscles, I mean, scary guy. I said, I'd like to buy that dog in the backyard. And I said, I got 300 bucks. All I got, not a penny more. I'd like to buy that dog. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, oh, my daughter loves that dog. My daughter loves that dog. We It's not for sale. I said, any way I can change your mind. No, the dog's not for sale. Slams the door in my face. And I went back over to my friend's house. I went home again dreamt about that dog and I, I couldn't get him off my mind at all. It was intrusive, the thoughts about this dog. Like I I would be, you know, doing my little office job thing that I do, 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 and you know, a picture of him would pop into my mind. I can't explain why, but I really felt compelled. And I've seen other dogs, I don't think I've ever seen one this bad, that I've just said, oh, that's very sad. You know, someone should do something. Someone should do something, the famous someone, you know. Um, but in this case, I felt like I had to. My friends move out of this house. So I devised this plan. And I didn't tell my friends, by the way, because I thought the less anybody knew, the better for me. Just in case anything happened. 
I had things pretty planned out. You know, I had lists for different scenarios. Well, what if this? Well, I'll do that. You know, well, what if this? Then I'll do that. That sort of thing. And I knew what I was going to pack and how to pack light. I knew the equipment that I needed so that I could keep it in my car just to be able to get out of town. I had plans. I tried to practice going over a fence a little bit and what shoes would fit inside a chain link fence. You know, I wasn't just going to be able to pop over the fence. I was going to need to put my feet in those little things to use them to get over. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I was really scared, but I was also on a mission. I was going to find him a home where he could be loved and cared for and treated the way that he should be. I took a week off of work. I told friends I was going on vacation, kind of was. So I packed everything in the car and I drove four hours back to this town where this dog lived. I stayed in a, like a flea bag motel, no hotel motel, because I was really short on cash. So my plan was to sleep during the day and wait all night and watch and see if I could find a time when the house was empty. The way the houses are in this city, this is not like an urban environment like it is here. So they'd have a row of houses and a street on a block. And then they had an alley and then a row of houses that faces the next street over. So this long, long alley and everybody has their garbage cans in the alley, that sort of thing. And they had a low, about a, maybe a four foot uh, chain link fence. I drove down there, I stayed in the Fleabag Hotel, and I would put all of my belongings in the car with me when I went to watch the place at night. Because I, I thought my hotel was probably going to get broken into. It was that bad. I found a pretty good place to hang out where I could still see the yard and the house, but not. It was in somebody else's garage, basically. Sort of a shed garage sort of thing. But I was still able to see the backyard where this dog was and the house. I brought hot dogs because hot dogs smell really good and dogs love those. And uh, every once in a while I would go and throw in some hot dogs. when I kind of wanted him to get used to me a little bit so, you know, he wouldn't bark at me or bite me. Every minute of casing the place, I was terrified. I was sure that one of the lookouts was going to see me and that I was going to get shot. Uh, that they, they were going to think I was the police or going to try to rob them or any number of things. I said, okay, I'm going to give it a week. And then if it doesn't work out, I've done the best that I can. On the third night, the house is empty. Or it's the emptiest that it's been, as far as I can tell. Like all the lights are off. It's pretty early. A lot of times they would stay up later. All the lights are off. It's very, very quiet. And I just said, okay, it's now or never. Got the bolt cutters, got the hot dogs, and I'm throwing him hot dogs. And he barked once, threw him the hot dog, and he was quiet after that. I just kept tossing the hot dogs. Miraculously got over the fence. And I had these bolt cutters in my hand as well. And I slowly make my way over to him and he has this huge padlock on his neck that I now have to get off in order to free him and take him with me. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to 
uh, do use bolt cutters on a lock, but it's like a shot. It sounds like a gunshot. <laughs> it really does crack. I had no idea that it was going to be that loud, and I just froze. And it took me qu uh, much longer than it should. I really should have practiced, but I didn't really know how much strength I would need. I just thought, oh my god, you're so stupid. You're just about to be killed, and you're going to end up at the bottom of a river. And I heard something, and I just grabbed him, and I had this adrenaline rush like I've never had in my life. On the way out, because I was so scared, I jumped the fence like I was a gymnast, just, I mean, with a dog in my hand. And I heard somebody shouting. And I don't know whether it was somebody from the house, somebody had heard the crack and wondered if it was a gunshot. I, I just don't know. Got him into the car. I booked it out of there so fast. I ran red lights. After slowing down to see when he's coming, I ran red lights. I thought, well, if the cops stop me, great. You know that I'm sort of protected. Uh, but there were no police in that area. Forget it. Uh, made my way to the freeway on-ramp, which I had already mapped out. And I left town, and I didn't stop. I brought him home, and he was potty trained in 24 hours. I started teaching him a couple tricks, right? Uh, one of the first things I taught him was to go night-night. So put his paws together and put his head down on his thing. So we taught him night-night. So I thought if I teach him a couple tricks, somebody's gonna want to adopt him. The plan was never to keep this dog ever. My other friends like knew that I had rescued him, uh, but I didn't spread the story far and wide. I just didn't want it to be common knowledge. He was a project. He had broken ribs, probably from where he'd been kicked. You couldn't raise your feet. If I just raised my feet around him like that, just sitting down, he would go crazy. I, I think he had been kicked. He was terrified of men, absolutely terrified of all men. I took him to the dog park, and I just want to, like, really appreciate men who go to the dog park. These really good guys, they really understood when I said, look, he's been abused by men, and I really want to make it men okay, and they got it. For a while, they would have to put their hand way over here and move their body away from him so he would take the hot dog. So that took a while, and then it got closer and closer and closer to where men could finally pet him. It kind of taught me that men aren't all bad either. We were both damaged goods, you know? We really were at the time, broken, both of us. And then I go in the kitchen, I'm making a salad and I'm chopping carrots, I'll never forget this. He comes running into the kitchen, he gets all down and he goes, night, night, and he looks back up at me and he kept putting his head down on his paws and looking back up to me and saying, see, aren't I cute, give me a treat, I'm doing it. I'm doing the trick, give me a treat. That's the moment that I fell in love with him. This is Buddy. Uh, he's laying here cuddling us while we talk. I think he's approximately 14 is what, what the vet thinks. He keeps the backyard free of all squirrels for life. It's his job and he takes it very, very seriously. He loves the dog park. 
We do some off-leash hiking in the hills, and it's really beautiful. And he loves it. He absolutely loves the freedom of being able to run and go, okay, what's next? Every day is a good day. See, Snappers, even a dog can have a backstory. That piece was brought to us by Whit Misseldine of the amazing podcast, This Is Actually Happening. Subscribe to this podcast, Snappers. The original score was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Whit Misseldine with assistance from Nancy Lopez. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, we almost forget which side we're fighting for. When the backstory episode continues, stay tuned. From WNYC Studios, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the backstory episode. My name is Glenn Washington. And for our next journey, we're going back in time to South Africa, the 1980s, when Nelson Mandela was in jail and apartheid was law. I was looking for a cause in my life. Well, I was 21, so I was still young enough to go back to university. Right from the first week of term, the organizations are all out recruiting people. I found it really easy to make friends in, in left-wing organizations, but I'm here under false pretenses. See, months before, Olivia had joined South Africa's apartheid government as a spy. For her, going back to college was an assignment. When I was first approached by national intelligence. I asked them what they did. And they said, well, we collect information and we send people overseas. I thought, wow, I'd love to go overseas. You become part of the secret world, which is quite intoxicating. But it was only when they said, you're going to go back to university that I thought, oh, that was a bit of a reality check. That's not what I was expecting. Olivia's mission? Infiltrate the leftist student groups at Rhodes University in Grahamstown. Posing as an activist, she grew close with organizers who were against the apartheid government, like Priscilla. Priscilla Hall, I actually heard about from files that the police gave me to read before I even went undercover. She was regarded by the police anyway as a kind of irritating liberal. So I met her after I'd got to Grahamstown at one of the meetings that we had. She also met activists who lived in the segregated, all-black township neighboring Grahamstown, like Chris. He was a a very sincere young man. Chris was the leader of an organization in the Black Township called Graco, the Grahamstown Youth Congress. I met him with, with one of our mutual lefty friends the first time. Together, they would stage protests, print leaflets, and recruit new members. Then, with that information, Olivia would break off from the group. She'd grab her running shoes and go for a jog down a quiet university road. From there, her security branch handler would tail her in his car 
and when the coast was clear, he'd slow down and open the side door. Jump in the car, duck down in a footwell, he'd throw a blanket over me and then drive somewhere where we could talk. Olivia handed over names, addresses, and associates of anyone she thought the government would consider a traitor. My handler said, there will come a time when you will identify with the enemy. It's a perfectly normal part of infiltration, and they sort of warned me of all of this. One night, Olivia was at home when she got a call from Priscilla. It was about 8 o'clock one night. I was at home, and she phoned me. She phoned me, and she said, Chris's house has been petrol-bombed. We need your help. Um, can you come down there? And and so uh, and, and I didn't hesitate straight away. I just thought, oh, my God, you know, jumped in the car and drove there. Chris's girlfriend had been injured in this petrol bomb blast, and she was sitting there with the blanket over her. And so I didn't realise how badly she was injured. And they said, can you take her to the hospital? And so they put her in the back of my car, and I drove to the hospital really quickly. Got to the hospital jumped out of the car, ran into reception, and there was a bloke sitting behind the counter at reception, and I said to him, quickly, quickly, you've got to get a stretcher, get the doctors, I've got a girl in the car who's really been badly injured. And he, he, he looked up at me, and he said in a, in, in a very strong Afrikaans accent, he said, lady, is she black or white? And you know, at that moment, I was so angry. She's black, what difference does it make? And he said, well, lady, if she's black, you have to go around to the back entrance of the hospital. So I jumped in the car and I drove around to the back. The doctors, when I did get to the back entrance, were fantastic. But when they took the blanket off and they put her on the stretcher, I realised that her skin was just hanging off her in shreds. They transferred her to another hospital the next day. But the third day, she died. Her, Her burns were too significant. She couldn't survive. And, you know, she was 16 years old and she had done nothing. It really got to me. She was innocent. She was just somebody's girlfriend. She was a young girl with her life ahead of her. And she died because her boyfriend was trying to change an evil system. That really affected me deeply and made me really feel a huge amount of anger towards the apartheid system, the whole state, all of its apparatus. From then, I knew that I'd have to do something to make it right. I thought, I'm not just an informer, I'm an intelligence operative, and if there's going to be a way I can make amends, it's going to be in a much more serious and high-level way. Olivia wanted to work for the ANC, the African National Congress, the major apartheid resistance group in South Africa, the same group she'd been monitoring and reporting on for the security branch. But she needed an in. So, when the security branch told her to become a journalist and keep tabs on leftist leadership, she made a contact at the ANC, who asked to meet her in person. A man called Comrade Robert um, in a park in Harare. I sat next to Comrade Robert on the park bench and said to him, I'm a lieutenant in the South African security branch and I want to come and work for the ANC. Comrade Robert was quite excited and eventually we decamped to an ANC safe house and he debriefed me there. And I was able to give the ANC quite a lot of information about other agents. The ANC sent Olivia right back into the field. Now, she would report on the inner workings of the South African police force. She would keep posing as a journalist and continue her regular meetings with her security branch handlers. 
and I remember going to the safe flat, sitting down amongst these members of the South African security police. Everything was the same, but I was different. And so it was now, the main difference for me was that I now was observing details about them. I was very much aware of the risks. I mean, A, the risk of them finding out that I defected. They wouldn't hesitate to harm people whom they considered betrayers. When some of the ANC leadership people in the Eastern Cape disappeared and were found murdered, I knew it was them. So yes, there was a risk of me being harmed by the security branch. But once I had defected, I felt as if I was walking on air. And after six months of playing both sides, the ANC told Olivia they were sending her off for military training. The morning of her departure, she woke up excited. A convoy picked her up from her house and brought her to a camp in the brush. There, she met the camp commander. He said, uh, do you know why you're here? And I smiled and I said, yes, I think so. Because as far as I was concerned, I was there for military training. And then he gestured behind me and he said, can you just put that uniform on? And I turned around and on the table behind me was all my luggage. And they'd smashed open the locks. And I thought, well, why have they done that? And then he said to me, do you have any tackies, trainers in South African? And I said, yes, I did. He said, we'll take them out. I took them out. And he said, take out the laces. And then I just knew. And my heart just sank. I just went cold because as soon as he said, take out the laces, I knew I was a prisoner. I was shocked because I couldn't understand why, but I didn't really have time to think then. I took the laces out and, and he said, just go with this comrade over here. I started to get alarmed and angry. I said, what's going on? And he said, he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, you will see. You will see. Olivia was an inmate at Quattro, the ANC's secret prison for defectors, traitors, and enemies. It was unbearably hot. We used to lie on the floor with our mouths near the door to try and get some fresh air sometimes. We could only hear things. We were kept in the cell more or less 24 hours a day. Some of the people in the ANC hadn't trusted me. Why would they want to lock me up? I came to them, I've confessed everything. I don't need to be locked up. Lying awake at night in the camp, in the cell, I did often wonder uh, how much the, the police knew and if they didn't know why they hadn't sent a rescue party. I felt absolutely powerless, more than anything. I felt absolutely powerless. Olivia was locked up in Quattro for six months when the ANC moved her to a secret location, a safe house in a nearby town. They came up with this idea of using me in a prisoner exchange to try and get some high-level ANC prisoners released from apartheid jails. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. I was quite happy to do that. But the trouble was, once the letter went about the prison exchange, there was no response from the South African government at all. The South African police were not looking for Olivia. They had abandoned her. And the ANC wanted to keep her a prisoner, not deploy her as an agent. The weeks started to become months, and I was sitting there day after day. And then the fact that my family hadn't seen me for two years started really playing heavily on my mind. I missed them terribly. I, you know, I used to lie in bed and wonder where they were, what they were doing, were they still alive? And I knew they'd be wondering the same thing about me. Olivia knew the ANC would never release her from house arrest. She had to escape. Leaving was actually a very difficult decision. 
because I did feel I owed a huge allegiance to the people in the ANC who had taken the trouble to trust me and work with me. But I've, I felt so strongly that I was never ever going to be used. Behind the ANC safe house lived um, a retired man, grandfather, and he was called Tio Mario. And he always used to just greet me in a friendly way whenever he saw me. And occasionally he would ask how I was. And he had a car. And I thought, well, he's the only person who's going to be able to help me. Eventually, one day, he was in the yard. No one else was around. And I just said to him, look, I need to get to the British Embassy because I I need to contact my family and let them know I'm all right. That's all I said. I didn't say I was going to escape or anything. And he nodded and he said, Yes, sure, he'd be able to take me there. And we made an arrangement for the Saturday. All the comrades were at the other side of the house. I was on my own. He arrived and he beckoned to me and I just jumped over the wall, jumped into the footwell of the Land Rover. And he drove off and I was absolutely petrified at that moment. I was just waiting to hear people shouting. I was waiting to hear gunshots. I was waiting to hear AK-47s being fired and they didn't come. And he kept driving and eventually I sat up and I could see he was driving through the streets of Luanda and eventually stopped in front of this gate and I could see in Portuguese that it said Embassy of Great Britain. And I thought, wow, he has brought me to the right place. The whole building, the whole place, the whole embassy compound was in absolute silence. But I could hear my heart thumping louder than anything and I needed to get out of the open and eventually when no one answered the door I just tried it and it opened and I went inside and then suddenly I was in this cool quiet space and I was safe and it was all quite surreal it was elegant and smelled nice and I felt as if I was in limbo to be honest there was a sense of unreality about it I couldn't quite believe I was there The British Embassy takes Olivia in and negotiates her return to South Africa. She's reunited with her family and allowed to return to their home. But she's not off the hook. Once she's back at home, the security branch contacts her. They tell her, you betrayed us, and now you have to cooperate with us, or we will make you disappear. So Olivia agrees to work with them on a propaganda piece that pits her as an apartheid hero, a triple agent, sent to spy on the ANC. They call it Project Yurchenko. Produced quite professionally with a script and lots of cuttings to various maps and things to make it sound authentic and interviews with the head of the security branch about what a great spy I was. And they said that they had sent me to defect. Project Yurchenko was front-page news in South Africa. And many people reviled Olivia after the story was released. She was a cog in the apartheid government's corrupt system. She couldn't tell the truth, her truth, that she had worked against them all along. Instead, she kept her head down, changed her name, became a private member of society, and tried to move on. When you think about things you've done in your past, there are often things you'd rather you'd done differently. But I would do it all over again because I think whatever happens, it's important in the end to do what's right. I think every human being knows what's right. And I knew, although I had landed 
in my search for an exciting life, I'd landed on the wrong side of the apartheid struggle. I think I did what was right. I, I defected. Whether it, I did it in the right way or at the right time, I mean, you know, you could speculate endlessly. I'm just glad that I did it. Thank you, Olivia Forsyth, for sharing your backstory with a snap. If you want to hear more from Olivia, she's written a book, Agent 407. Find out more information on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was by Renzo Gorio, and that story was produced by Eliza Smith. You've reached the end of the episode. But not the end of the relationship, Snappers. We've got the greatest collection of audio stories ever assembled. Running, biking, driving, walking, commuting, take Snap with you. For a limited time, the amazing, free Snap Judgment Podcast is yours for the asking. Subscribe now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast, get Snap. Snap Judgment Live rocks BAM in Brooklyn, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Houston, Austin, Dallas. The Snap 2016 Performer of the Year, Don Reed, returns with an all-new story. Backed by the sexy, soulful funk of Bell's Atlas, get tickets at snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by the team that just sprang out of nowhere. Big love to the Uber producer, Mark Ristich. Pat Masidi Miller, Anna Sussman, Davy Kim, Joe Rosenberg, Nancy Lopez, Eliza Smith, Taylor Ducat, Renzo Gorio, Leon Morimoto, Liz Mack, and Adiza Egan. Jasmine Aguilera calls in from the Snap Judgment Orbiting Hall of Justice. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you could plan your comeback tour before you even do your tour tour, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.